0: I never recorded a collection of music that went on to be a timeless classic, or at least not yet. I'm not even a coffee drinker. I'm just a schnook. Well, hey friends, thank you for tuning in. Do you wait? Do you actually tune in to a podcast? I mean, you download it, you play it, you stream it? You really tune in? I don't think so. Unless somebody's broadcasting this on a radio somewhere, I guess, so should be pretty cool because that way I'm kind of radio broadcasting and I don't realize it but uh anyway this is Sean this is chapter 28 episode 28 of autobiography of a schnook and I hope you're all well as for me I, th- I think I'm well I feel pretty good and yeah yeah I'm doing okay I, I think no the thing is especially I'm feeling particularly well because for the re- I'm recording this on the evening of December 7th. 2020. It's early in the month, yet I don't have any full work weeks left for the remainder of the year, and I'm thrilled about that. Uh, I get a generous time off package where I work, and I'm usually pretty stingy with my paid time off. I try to go a long time without using it. Like, I don't take any in January unless I get sick or something, and uh, I might take President's Day in February and then a few days for spring break and maybe a couple of days in the summer, and I take my birthday off or whatever's around that, and I still have a good chunk of time off left over. And the first thing I do when I plan my time off is I plan my time off for December 21st through the end of the year so that starting from December 21st, I don't go back to work until January because I love that time off between Christmas and New Year's. I, I so love it so much. I really do. It's my favorite part of Christmas, really. I mean, I know that sounds selfish. You know, it should be more about, you know, the spirit of giving and everything, which I really have grown to appreciate over my life, really. But just something about knowing I can just be home, relax, do things that I want to do, spend time with uh, my wife and the dog. I just really look forward to that. And I'm, I get really excited about that. And this year in particular was a particularly strange year for obvious reasons. Um, My company was very, very COVID safe. It wasn't even January 10th when they put out a directive saying no business travel is allowed until further notice because of COVID-19. They said if you want to travel on your own for your own personal reasons, whatever. But for business, no, because we have offices in many different parts of the country and, in fact, outside of the country. And right before St. Patrick's Day, I think it was, the company said, nobody is to go back to the office. Everybody work from home until we tell you otherwise. Well, last I heard, last they told us, which wasn't too long ago, they told us, "Uh, folks, you're going to be working from home until at least the beginning of June, which is fine with me. I don't miss my commute. I really don't. I love sleeping in a little bit, just taking a shower, taking the dog for a walk, and already I'm at work. And when five o'clock happens and it's time to quit for the day, I'm already home. I, I really like this. I like it a lot. And my job can easily be done working from home. In fact, uh, we actually have a general working from home policy that, you know, we allow people to work from home from time to time. If say, um, they, uh, they expect say the plumber to come by or something that way they don't have to worry about that. So that'd be really cool if I can keep working from home at least a couple of times a week when uh, things get, uh, back to somewhat normal. But in all the COVID madness, our company has been very generous with us. They actually added a few holidays to the mix. Uh, They added one in December, they added one the week of Thanksgiving, and they added a few more. And I think the reason they did that was because they were afraid that there were going to be some people who, because, well, because of COVID-19, they're not traveling, that's less reason to take vacation. They want us to take breaks. They tell us, "Please take time off, you know, give yourself a rest." And I think this is one way they do it, to kind of force it in. And with these extra holidays they gave us, that gave me more time to play with my time off, with my paid time off. So, I scheduled, let's see, when was it? I scheduled this coming Friday, December 11th, because I had originally scheduled this Friday, December 11th. Now, here's the thing. After having my time off approved for December 21st through the end of the year, and all the other time off I had during the year, including Thanksgiving week, I took the entire week off for Thanksgiving. Lisa and I were originally planning to go out to New Jersey to visit Lisa's mom, like we do every year. But with all the warnings and everything, we canceled that trip. And that means that this is the first time in about 20 years that I went an entire year without flying somewhere. We were supposed to go to... uh, San Diego for spring break, but we canceled traveling for then. We rescheduled it for summer, but things weren't looking good in the summer, so we canceled that travel. But after all that time off that I still took, all the extra holidays they threw at us, which I'm very thankful for, and man, I'm so happy I work for this company, and just the time off that I accrued over the years, I had to hurry up and come up with days that I'm taking off in, December. So I scheduled December 11th as one of my days off. Well, as soon as I did that, the company came by and said, You know what, guys, you've been working really, really hard. You deserve an extra day. So we're declaring December 11th a holiday. So I had to think of another day. So I thought, Okay, let's make December 18th my day off. So now my Christmas break starts December 18th and ends in January. So this is pretty freaking sweet. But on top of all that, they also gave us December 14th off. So I have a four-day weekend. So this week, I don't work Friday. I only work four days. Next week, I only work three days because I'm off Monday and Friday. And then after that, it's I'm done for the year. And I'm so excited about that. I really, really am. One thing I am a little bit concerned about, though, is I probably won't be able to visit with my family this year for Christmas. And, uh, I don't think I'm going to get a Catholic guilt trip from my mother about it, because uh, recently when I was talking to her and she said, "Well, here's what I'm thinking: we might have to do for Christmas, assuming we're able to have Christmas this year, given all that's going around." So at least I have that kind of a relief. So if I decide that uh, yeah, we're not coming to see you guys for Christmas, then at least uh, I don't think I'm going to get a hard time about it. What I'm thinking we might be able to do at the very least is maybe uh, drive down. And just drop off the presents and stay six feet away from everybody. Keep our masks on and say, hi, everybody. Sorry, I haven't seen you in six months. But uh, at least we're seeing each other now. Bye. (laughs) Especially because my parents live in Will County, which has had a much higher rate of infection than other counties in the Chicago area. So might just be Lisa and me for Christmas and Lola the Beagle, of course. Lisa's mom was originally gonna come out for Christmas like she usually does, but she called a few days ago and said, "Okay, the governor just delivered an address about COVID. I don't think I should come out. I'm just gonna cancel." So that was kind of a relief because we didn't have all the worries that we had before. It sucks that we're not gonna see her too, but you know, it's it's for the best. It's for the best. We all agreed, hey, you know, we're keeping each other safe. Uh, we'll basically do what we can to ensure that because of our actions this year we will be able to have christmas next year so that's all i'm gonna say about covid i guess because i don't want this to be a covid podcast other than to say that i really hope you're all being safe out there please wear a mask if you can't keep six feet away from people okay please please not too much to ask Uh, if you have a physical condition that makes it too much to ask then really you probably shouldn't be around other people that you don't already live with and it sucks but man keep yourself safe keep everybody else safe please and it's like i said before in the end all we have is each other so let's support each other the best we can okay and uh hopefully that's what autobiography of a schnook is going to do for you give you some support give you something to uh something different to listen to just some random guy in chicago talking about himself. Before I forget, there are a couple of things with the previous episode that I do have to address, and uh, both were brought up by my friend and uh, Pie Factory podcast co-host, Jim. Uh, I had to sneak a plug in there, so thank you for reaching out, Jim. <laughs> now, Jim pointed out, well, for one thing, a really stupid mistake I made. Uh, I referred to The song Don't Answer Me, because I was talking about how I saw the video all the time on the UHF video channel that was in my area. I would see that video all the time. And, well, in the previous episode, I said it was by the Steve Miller Band, which, yes, I know it is not. I got to tell you, I make that mistake all the time. All the time. I know it's the Alan Parsons Project. You see, here's the problem, folks. In addition to Don't Answer Me being in heavy rotation in that video channel, so was Abracadabra by the Steve Miller Band. So I kind of get the two confused sometimes, especially because I think the first line of Don't Answer Me is, uh, if you believe in the power of magic. Now, the subconscious mind probably connects magic and Abracadabra, and that's probably a contributing factor to my screwing those two things up all the time. I make that mistake all the time. And Jim also commented that he was surprised that I didn't mention my favorite Mystery Science Theater 3000 episode. And I thought about it, actually. Uh, I totally forgot to mention it, but I thought about it since Jim brought it up. And uh, my favorite episode is from Season 6. So it's a Mike episode, not a Joel episode. And it's uh, Danger Death Ray. That is one of the most hysterical episodes I've ever seen. I have, oh, shoot, I was going to bring her in to testify. I was going to bring Lisa in to testify, but she left to uh, uh, run an errand or two. (laughs) But there was uh, one day when she was feeling really, really crummy. And I said, I'm putting my foot down. You're going to watch something with me. So I popped in an old videotape I had back from like 1995-ish. It was uh, not the first time it aired, but it was sometime after it aired. I used to record Mystery Science Theater 3000 all the time. I I still have several videotapes in my collection that have three episodes on each of them. So I pulled out the one that hit Danger, Death Ray, and I said, I want you to watch this with me. And when the movie started, and the theme music in the movie started with the singers, I swear... Lisa almost suffocated. She was laughing so hard, she could not. She just, she just couldn't. She just could not deal with it. <laughs> and it's just beautiful. It's this cheesy, vaguely Italiany movie. In fact, I think it's Italian. I think it was made in Italy, and it's dubbed in English. I believe. I think it's dubbed, and it's a spy movie about an American spy named Bart Fargo. It's just a st- Stunningly, the the plot is is just ridiculous because he, he can't get the girl. He fails so many times to get the girl. And you think, hey, I'm used to James Bond. I need my spy to get the girl. He keeps failing. <laughs> the uh, riffs from Mike and the Bots are great. And... This is going to be a spoiler, so if you don't want to know the end of the movie, then just go ahead and skip ahead by about 30 to 60 seconds. But in the very end, when Bart finally gets the girl, he's getting called on his little communications device from his girlfriend slash boss's secretary. But meanwhile, he's uh, kind of two-timing her. He's uh, making out with another woman. And the communication device is embedded in his watch. Well, he's making out with this woman, and he hears this communication coming. So he takes off his watch, and he throws it out the window. He defenestrates it from several stories up. The camera cuts over to the outside of the building and shows the watch falling off the building. You know, It got thrown off the building. And then it lands in water. I guess it's a pool or maybe a a near... I I don't know what... I don't remember off the top of my head what kind of body of water is near that building, but it lands in the water. And then all of a sudden, there's another cut, and you see a hand just carefully place the watch in the water, and the watch falls down. And it's like, wait, what happened here? I was screaming the first time I saw that. I'm, I'm pretty sure what they meant to do was show the watch being thrown off the building then show it splashed down in the water and then show the watch just kind of sinking down and they just edited it very poorly and didn't bother to do a retake now here's the thing there is a version of danger death ray that's on youtube just the raw movie itself no mystery science theater or anything but that version actually has the editing done properly at the end I don't know if it's just another official edit of the movie, or if somebody tampered with it to take that bad scene out. Now, the thing is, even though that's my favorite episode, I can't definitively say it's one of the best episodes of any TV show ever, especially because a lot of Mysties, as we call ourselves, would probably disagree, because a lot of them don't like Mike as the host. I do, I like Mike. They would much rather have a Joel episode, and I think the gold standard that everybody judges against is Manos, the Hands of Fate, from the, uh, I think it's the final episode of season four, and if you've never seen that movie, it is very poorly made on a silent film camera, and the voices had to be overdubbed later, and all the voices are done by like two or three people because they didn't get the whole cast back to do the voices, they only picked a few of them. It's about this family who's taking a road trip, and they make a wrong turn, and they end up at this house uh, that is run by this really strange cult that worships a god named Manos. And the owner of the house is the master, who is a priest for Manos, and his assistant is Torgo, who... Okay, if you've ever watched The Office, Moe's Schrute is Torgo. I'll just put it to you that way. There's so many disturbing things about that movie. The thing is, like, I would never recommend that episode to somebody who's never seen Mystery Science Theater three thousand before. It is not for the faint of heart. It's not. It's not gory or anything. It's just mentally disturbing. <laughs> but probably, I think most Mystery Science Theater fans who would agree with me that you shouldn't show Manos to someone who's new to the show. You probably, or if you want to say that any particular episode is one of the best episodes of any TV show ever it would probably be one that also has a short subject before the movie those are great those are always great but i'm not going to ramble on about that right now so i just want to move on to the rest of the uh, the episode here actually now that i think of it there was one episode i did forget to mention that i think does deserve a spot in the greatest TV episodes of all time And that is the first episode of the 1967 season of Dragnet. That's the one with Blue Boy. I'm sure many people who've seen Dragnet know the one I'm talking about. Uh, Depending on which source you look at, it's called either the LSD story, or as it's called in my DVD copy, the big LSD. Uh, my DVD, all the episodes are called the big something or other. My wife got me the 1967 DVD set for Christmas a few years ago. It's interesting because Jack Webb was so anti-anything that wasn't establishment and yes, sir, no, ma'am, please, this, thank you, that. I have a nice crew cut. Uh, If it was anything beyond that, he took huge offense to it. So, of course, he would jump on anything involving drugs. The only thing is I think the LSD episode was pretty accurate in terms of its effect on people, and, of course, the times they were going through, because the episode was set in 1966, back when LSD was still legal, and they were basically fighting to criminalize it. You're pretty high and far out, aren't you? What kind of kick are you on, son? And uh, there's one thing that people do tend to miss. is uh, I, I'm going to give it away. I don't care because, hey, it's Dragnet. The thing about that is the character Blue Boy, he ends up dead in the end. He's at an acid party, and uh, somebody else who's there said that Benji's been in that position for about an hour. He said he wants to keep going farther and farther out. And Joe Friday just touches him, gets a pulse, and says, Well, he made it. He's dead. And people are saying, wait a minute, you can't overdose on LSD. Well, the thing is, the explanation at the end of the episode is that he was also taking barbiturates. So that explains that. He overdosed on Barb's. And the thing about Dragnet, it's such a hoot to watch, because it's it's so dryly acted, and the background music they use is so over-the-top, over-dramatic. And Barry Williams, as in Greg Brady from the Brady Bunch, he was in an episode of Dragnet back in the 60s, in the 60s revival, I think in 68, he played an altar boy in a Christmas episode. And uh, that episode, by the way, Jack Webb loved it. He actually used that script at least four times. I think he used it twice when Dragnet was a radio show, once, maybe twice, when Dragnet was on TV in the 50s, and of course, again, when Dragnet was on in the 60s. Because he just loved the story, and it's a really syrupy, sweet ending. <laughs> but Barry Williams was talking about how Dragnet always seemed very dry, and unexciting to him when he watched it on TV, and when he was on the show, he learned really quickly why it was so dry. He said that it wasn't actually acted; it was all read. He gets to the set, and somebody on the crew asks him, uh, "Barry, where do you want your teleprompter?" And he said, "My my what? now? because he didn't know what that was, because they didn't memorize their lines in that show; they read them." off of teleprompters, but Barry Williams was a professional actor by that time, and he memorized everything. So people were like, what's up with this kid? <laughs> and uh, he talked about how he heard later on that when they were looking for a child actor again for another episode, Jack Webb apparently said, hey, that egghead kid who memorized his lines, see if he's available. But uh, I gotta say this, so, yeah, it's dry and dramatic, but here's the reason. I only just realized this like some years ago. I listened to some of the radio episodes, and it's the exact same style. It's so dry, and the musical interludes are just so over the top. It's because it was made specifically for radio drama. It works on the radio. The problem is, when they moved to TV, they never adapted for TV. They just did the radio show in front of a camera, really. So that's why for TV, was so weirdly stiff. But this is an autobiographical podcast, the next segment is going to be something that's not usual. It's not really going to be a story like I like to do, but just some random pieces of info about this schnook that you're hearing right now. There's some things about me that kind of come up in conversation now and then that I'll just share with all of you, my friends, all four of you. <laughs> And some things about that kind of make me who I am, what I am, how I am. There are a few things that I've never done. I'm 46 years old and there are a few things that I've never done in my life. For one thing, I've never blown a bubble from bubble gum. I never have. I've tried. I never could. I don't know why. I've tried. Uh, Is it worth it? I don't know. I don't know. I'm not much of a gum chewer, though. I I don't chew gum very much. Um, Then you have people like my dad. My dad... Can blow a bubble from Wrigley's gum, which is not a bubble gum. He just does it out of habit. I I was like, dad, how do you, how do you do that? And he explained to me how he did it. It's not the way he talked. It wasn't very hard. And I can't even do it with gum that is specifically made for blowing bubbles with. I don't know why. And something that I've never done. Now, friends, I have lived in the city of Chicago for over 14 years. I never in the city of Chicago Ever got a parking ticket to this day, ever? Yeah, I know people living in Chicago hearing this are going to call me a big fat liar. Well, you're right on two out of those three. The thing you're wrong about is the liar part. I have never gotten a parking ticket. And I'm very proud of myself for it. I mean, for one thing, I'm like, I actually park legally. Yeah. I always pay my meter on time, I don't let it expire. And there were some times when I kind of gambled and I parked without paying just to run into a store and then run back out. In fact, I mentioned that in the previous episode uh, when I went out to run my uh, errands the day before Thanksgiving. I was downtown, downtown Chicago. I pulled over outside of a Chase Bank, and you better believe that you cannot park for free in downtown Chicago or downtown anywhere as far as I know. I just needed to run in, go into an ATM. And get cash. I figured that's all I need to do. I should be back before anybody catches me. So the ATMs are right there in the windows. There was a clear view of the street. So I parked, I went into the ATM, figured no problem. I'll just uh, get my money out and then run back. Took out my phone for a card free transaction. Turned out the ATMs there were not equipped with uh, the phone reader. So I had to dig out my ATM card, put it in the ATM. Went through all the transactions, told it how much money I want. It went through the motions, I heard things whirring in the background, and then all of a sudden it said, sorry, your transaction cannot be completed at this time. But I needed the cash, because I had to go somewhere where they only accepted cash. Um, That's one thing I failed to mention about, hey, one of the places that I visited to uh, buy something that I wanted to try. <laughs> they only accept cash. They don't accept cards or checks or anything, just cash. Meanwhile, I see that there's a meter person. I don't know if they're called meter maids anymore, and plus I think it was a guy, so I don't know if he would be called a maid, who was going up and looking at the cars. And I'm thinking, oh my God, oh my God, he was on the cross street. He's going to be working his way to my car. I better hurry up. I stuck the card into another ATM, did get the cash that I needed, and I got out and Safely pulled away with no ticket before he even turned the corner. So that was a quick one. And then when I went over to the uh, La Fournette place where I got the croque monsieur I talked about, I also mentioned that I pulled over and didn't pay the meter. That's in Old Town. Old Town is another place in Chicago where, yeah, you have to pay the meter. But I pulled over, put the blinkers on to kind of indicate, yeah, I'm just going to be in and out. And I go in and I see the sign on the window of La Fournette and I saw that they had a limit of five people in the building due to COVID restrictions. So I step in, I see, oh crap, there are five people already. So I step back outside and I wait and wait and wait and my blinkers are on and I'm looking around to make sure nobody's going to give me a ticket. I don't see anybody, thankfully. So it looks like I'm safe. Eventually somebody comes out so I can go in and pick up my order. Except they failed to fulfill the order, so they had to make the order already. They had to make the sandwich. They had to get the soup ready and everything. And the guy said, uh, I couldn't tell what he said, whether he said two minutes or ten minutes. I think it was one of the people who uh, had a French accent. So I said, excuse me, say that again? He said, two minutes. I was like, oh, okay. And of course, I'm staring out the window, looking at my car the whole time, making sure nobody comes out. It's like, oh man, hurry up, hurry up, get the sandwich made, get the sandwich made. And there it is. There's a sandwich that's made. I get out, no ticket. Whew. No evidence that anybody was even near. So yeah, I will tell you this though. I have not gotten a parking ticket. However, my wife got nailed. Here was the situation. The way things are in most Chicago neighborhoods, in the residential neighborhoods, during certain months of the year, they do street cleaning. And there are signs that tell you what days of the week the street cleaning is done. And between certain hours of the day, you cannot park on a certain side of the street because they need the room to clean the street. They'll tell you something like between 10 a.m. and 4 p.m. And the thing is, let's say the time range is 10 a.m. to 4 p.m., if the street cleaner comes by at 10.04 and is done for the day, you still cannot park there until 4 p.m. or whatever it says in the sign. Doesn't matter if the street's already been taken care of. You will get a ticket if you're parked in that spot during that range of time. Well, here's what happened. When Lisa and I moved into our apartment, we had an option of getting a garage space for a little bit extra on our rent. Well, Thing is, when we moved in here, we were really, really, really in a bad financial place. We couldn't justify getting a parking space, and I figured, well, we only have one car. We live in a pretty reasonable neighborhood. We can find parking on just about any side street with little to no difficulty, unless there's something happening somewhere. So, figured, yeah, we don't need the garage space. So, we saved a little bit of money on rent that way. And we lived like that for eh, a little over a year because we moved in Labor Day weekend, 2006. And the reason that we were in a really tough financial place is that Lisa was not working full-time. While we were still living in New Jersey, before we moved, she had lost her full-time job. And she was actually staying behind for a while to finish her master's degree. And without that full-time job... You know, It was really hard to make ends meet. Uh, Lisa was doing some test prep teaching, like I was, uh, in addition to my full-time job, and it was a real struggle to keep our heads above water. But after living here for a while and dealing with parking and finding a place to park, Lisa said, I'm making an executive decision. As soon as I find a job, we're paying extra for a garage space. I said, okay. So what happens? She gets a job. She lands a full-time job, same one she still has now. Wow, she just had her 13th anniversary there just a few days ago, actually. I get home from work after she told me that she got a job, and she was thrilled to get a job after looking for over a year. And I said, okay, I'm going to call Frank, Frank's the landlord, and I'm going to say we'd like a garage space. She said, well, do you think we should wait? I said, you're going to thank me. You're going to thank me for this. So I called Frank and I said, if there's a garage space available, we'd like it. Uh, We understand here's what the fee is every month. And he said, yeah, we got one available. Just give us a few days and we'll have uh, Juan set you up with a key. Juan is our 24-hour on-site maintenance man. So what happened? Well, Lisa parked on one of the side streets and totally forgot to move the car the next day when it was street cleaning day. And she got a $50 ticket on the car. And literally that day is when Juan handed us the key to the garage. (laughs) So yeah, just hours after getting a parking ticket, we now had a garage space. But yeah, that was not my parking ticket. That was Lisa's. So (laughs) that was something that that was a kick in the pants. But hey, we had a garage space. And so help me God, her first day of work. Remember how I said to her, you're going to thank me for this. She thanked me for it. (laughs) Oh, mercy. Yeah, I never got a parking ticket, but I'll tell you what did happen to me that I think happens to pretty much everybody at some point during a life of living in Chicago. I did have my vehicle towed by a company that is known as the Lincoln Park Pirates. Lincoln Towing. And it was the weekend we moved in. Bastards actually towed my moving truck when we were unloading it. They claimed we were in a private spot, even though we had been given explicit permission to use it. And they told us it's gonna cost you eight hundred bucks. Yeah, eight hundred dollars for a small moving truck. Wow. So when they towed it away, Lisa drove me to Lincoln Towing's office near the intersection of Clark and Lawrence, and handed over a credit card, and the guy said, Well, we can't let you pay $800 with a credit card. We have a $300 limit. So yeah, we had to spread that across three different cards, three different cards. And this was not a good time for us to have to pay 800 bucks that we didn't have. So I paid the 800 bucks. They escort me over to the lot where the moving truck was. And... I'm getting into the moving truck, and one of their tow truck drivers comes over to me and says, how much did they get you on this one? I said, 800 bucks. And he said, 800 bucks? Are you serious? He said, man, you're getting ripped off. He told me to look at the receipt that I had. He said, there's a pink copy. There's a blue copy. He said, on the blue copy, there's a phone number for the Illinois Commerce Commission. Call them and report this. You got ripped off. There's no reason you should have been charged this much for this tow Something that I found out in the meantime was that not only should I not been charged that much, but if the person responsible for the vehicle shows up while the tow is being attached, they are required to detach the tow. And if they fine you anything, the maximum in this case would have to be $150. So yeah, so I called up the Illinois Commerce Commission they told me to contact specifically the Illinois Commerce Commission police and ask for a guy named Commander Boehner. So I did. I told Commander Boehner everything that went down. He said, yeah, this is there's, there's something wrong with all this. He said, we're going to assign an officer to your case, which they did. I got a call from a guy named Officer Morris, and he said, yeah, this is There's all kinds of wrong with this. Uh, We're going to, he said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to meet with you. I'm going to show you pictures of all the tow truck drivers. And if you can, I want you to identify whoever drove the truck. And the thing is, when I met with him, he showed up at my workplace on his way into his work. I didn't recognize anybody in the, I, I have a terrible memory for faces. I was able to rule out who it wasn't. But anyway, Officer Morris said, yeah, okay, we'll work on this. And so I kept following up with him. He said, yeah, 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 we're still working on it. We're still working on it. And probably a year, I, it was over a year that I was dealing with this. Then all of a sudden, Officer Morris forgot who I was. He had no idea who I was. None of this was familiar to him. He didn't remember meeting with me and showing me pictures. So yeah, there was I have a feeling something shady was going on. So never got my 800 bucks back. I try to charge back with different credit card companies and they're like, yeah, we're not doing that. Nope. You're on your own here. Great. So what do I do if I'm riding past Lincoln towing on my bike? Cause I do ride my bike on Clark street a lot. If I ride my bike past Lincoln towing and I see their door open and people are visible in there, I do what any self-respecting Chicagoan would do. Flip them the bird. There was one time I actually did that on my way home, which I usually don't because they're on the opposite side of the street on the way home, and I don't want any innocent victims getting the crossfire of my middle finger, but there was one time when there was no traffic on either lane, so I moved my bike over to the left, and I flipped the bird, and then I moved over to the right, and there was a red light right after that. So at that red light, a car pulls up to me, rolls down his window and said, Hey, I saw what you did, and I just want to say thank you. (laughs) and by the way the re the the lincoln park pirates nickname that they got was courtesy of a folk singer named steve goodman he had a big hit in chicago in 1984 called go cubs go (laughs) and um right after that song was a hit he died from leukemia he fought with leukemia for a huge chunk of his life and it eventually took him but he had a song called Lincoln Park Pirates that was about Lincoln Towing. Even though Lincoln Towing is no longer located in Lincoln Park, they're in Uptown now, uh, they still call them the Lincoln Park Pirates, and they are well known for shady practices. There was even a Chicago Tribune article about them some years ago, in which uh, it was kind of an investigative piece. These people were caught on videotape, actually taking cars that were parked in legal parking spaces. They would tow them away from those parking spaces and then put the cars back into tow zones and then took pictures of these cars in their tow zones. So when people complained, Lincoln Towing would come back to him and say, well, we have a picture right here of this car parked illegally in a tollway zone. So what are you complaining about? Well, the Tribune caught him forging it, basically. And after thousands upon thousands of complaints, the Illinois Commerce Commission actually revoked Lincoln Towing's license a couple of years ago. But they were still out towing cars. They were still out towing cars. And when they were ratted on for that, they went to court. Lincoln Towing actually went to court saying that they should still be allowed to tow cars while their license was suspended pending an investigation and pending a trial. So, Judge Neil Cohen said, yeah, we'll let you keep towing cars. And basically, they won their court case, and so they got off scot-free. Oh, and the day of their trial, (laughs) they put up a new sign on their building that had the Fallen Police flag on it. Yeah, good grief. So, yeah, what else can I say? Uh, Something else about me. Uh, This is kind of unusual, especially for people around my age. I do not drink coffee. I hate coffee. I hate the flavor of it. And I hate smelling coffee breath on other people. And the only thing worse than coffee breath on other people in terms of breath is smokers with coffee breath. Because you got that combined nasty scent. Yeah, I don't like coffee. In fact, I don't usually like hot drinks to begin with. uh, Except for hot chocolate. And if I'm feeling really, really sick, hot tea really helps. other than that, I prefer cold drinks. My morning drink is tea. Lisa makes a really, really great sweet-ish tea that we drink a cup of in the morning. It's not like Southern-style sweet tea. It doesn't have like a crap ton of sugar in it, but still has a sweet flavor to it. And I'll tell you what else that I love. As far as I'm concerned, the greatest beverage ever is unsweetened black iced tea. Because it tastes good doesn't have any sugar in it, and it doesn't have any calories either. So you can drink all you want of that stuff. You have a good drink, you won't gain weight. The only thing is the caffeine, though, of course. If you drink too much of that, you can really screw up your your heart and possibly other parts of your body. So I try to take it easy on that, too. But I just love knowing that it's out there. If I want a delicious drink, unsweetened iced tea, and if there's one thing that anybody who knows me well knows about me, it's that I also hate onions. Onion in fact I'm pretty dang sure that I have an allergy to onions because they actually make me throw up. They really do. It it's they discuss, even the flavor itself is enough to set me off and make me throw up. It's happened before. And yeah, it might it's some kind of food intolerance. I can handle say super super cooked onion if it's like an ingredient in a soup. But as a burger topping, a hot dog topping, basically, if it's tasteable, it does really bad things to me. So yeah, I always have to tell people if I'm out in a restaurant, uh, I always have to say no onions. I have to say no onion because, and I, and even then they don't do. It's not. It's not enough to just take the onion off a burger or something because the juice will still be there, the flavor will still be there, especially in the bun. In fact, there are some things that I feel should never ever be added to a burger unless specifically requested and that is tomato, pickle and onion because the juice will always stay behind if you take it off. I mean I don't mind the flavor of tomato so I don't tell them to leave the tomato off and I love pickle so I don't tell them to leave pickle off but man onion yeah forget it, forget it. When my wife was a tech writer back at AT&T for about 10 years She worked with a lot of Indians or a lot of people from India that worked with her, including her office mate. And she'd tell them that her husband can't stand onions. They were all in shock. They're like, you're kidding me. How the hell does he eat anything? Because I guess Indian cuisine can't exist without onion. I'll, I'll tell you this, though. There was an Indian restaurant in Chicago that I'd been to a couple of times. Where I had some food off their buffet that was amazing and was pretty Relatively onion-free, so I was happy with that. I was happy about that. So yeah, onion. Onions are a deal breaker for me. They really are. Other food I don't like. Well, I'm gonna sound like a whiner, but hey, that's just how I am. I don't mean to whine. I'm just stating. <laughs> cream cheese. Yeah, I cannot stand cream cheese. When I have a bagel, I use butter. I love lightly toasted buttered bagels. Mm, very good. I hate cream cheese frosting. I like buttercream frosting. Just something about the taste of that crap. Just so nasty. I will say this, though. There have been a couple of things that have cream cheese that I really do enjoy. For example, when we have people over, um, of course, in uh, non-pandemic times, my wife usually makes this amazing crab dip that uses cream cheese as an ingredient that stuff is so good but generally cream cheese i don't like which includes cheesecake by the way i cannot stand cheesecake i know that goes against laws of nature but i can't deal with it mushrooms i won't eat no way first of all just the thought of eating fungus i I mean think about this There was a brief time when uh, my wife and I lived in a one-bedroom apartment. Uh, The first apartment we had together, right before our honeymoon, we got a note from the landlord saying that the building was sold and was being converted into a single-family house. By the way, you all have 45 days to get out of (laughs) here. So we had to hurry up and find something fast, and we found this uh, one-bedroom apartment that, for some reason, had a fully carpeted bathroom. And um, periodically, there'd be mushrooms growing out of the carpet. I'm not going to eat something that grows out of a bathroom carpet. Uh, uh, Uh-uh-uh. No freaking way. No way. And also, just (laughs) the texture is just really disgusting. When I bite down on something, I don't need to hear a long, squishing sound. Oh, no. it's It's just so disturbing. I will say this, though. I will say this. There was one time, uh, probably, it had to have been in the 90s, the early 90s, maybe the mid-90s, my mother had made this dip that uh, it was really, really good. It was good for pretzels, good for thick chips, good for Ritz crackers. It was so good. It was delicious. There was one time I was going to a party and my mother said, hey, remember that dip that I made not too long ago? Let me make some. You bring that to the party. I was like, okay. And when I got there, that stuff was gone so fast. Everybody loved it. But the thing is, when my mother was making it, she would not allow me in the kitchen. Because she said there was something in it that she didn't want me to see. Well, I found out that one of the ingredients was cream of mushroom soup. And I was like, oh god, that crap is in this stuff? Well, yeah, I know, I know exactly uh, why she didn't want me to see it. Because she probably figured I'd never eat this stuff. But hey, I ended, I, I was eating it, apparently. I would never eat anything with mushroom in it, and uh, my mother was from that generation in which one of the staples of cooking dinner was fried hamburger and mushroom gravy. Apparently, my mother-in-law was uh, of that. Well, my mother-in-law is only four days younger than my mom, so yeah, they were both in that same generation, but I would refuse to eat that. I would never eat that, and uh, God bless her. My mother had the patience to whip something up really quickly for me to eat because she knew I wasn't going to touch that stuff. But I remember not terribly long ago, it had to have been within the past 10 years, I uh, somehow that dip that she made came up in conversation and I said, hey, I remember you kept me out of the kitchen because you didn't want me to know what was in that stuff. I said, well, I know it had that cream of mushroom soup in it. And she said, oh, that wasn't what I was worried about. What I was worried about was that it had that canned chili in it. And sure enough, yeah. I mean, that wouldn't have prevented me from eating that dip But I will say this, that was another thing that my mother would make for dinner that I refused to eat because I just could not, I just could not stomach it. And that was how I knew chili. To me, chili was that awful stuff in a can that I just couldn't eat. So anytime I was somewhere where there was chili available, I wouldn't take the chili. No way. Because I was like, oh man, I can't stand chili. Well, there was one time uh, back when I worked at the public library in Joliet, uh, the head of security took it upon himself to make a hot dog lunch. He grilled up a whole ton of hot dogs, and he had a pot of chili, too, in case you wanted to make a chili dog. So I grabbed a couple of hot dogs, and he said, hey, how about uh, putting chili on one of those? I was like, oh, man, I can't stand chili. He said, you're kidding me. I said, no, I don't do chili. He's like, no, you are putting some of this chili on there. And basically, he forced it upon me. And, um, so I tasted the chili dog and I was like, holy good God, this is amazing. He said, told (laughs) you. And I learned to accept chili when I got married because Lisa makes chili, but she makes it from scratch and it's amazing. Usually Cincinnati style. I've never had skyline chili, but it's the same style. If she tells me she's making Cincinnati chili, I get so freaking excited And I figured, okay, I just had to learn to grow up. That's all it was. Well, there was a time, I think I mentioned this before, but there was a time when I had to move back into my parents' house just for a few months. It was 2006. I had gotten a promotion that moved me to Chicago from New Jersey. But Lisa had to stay behind in New Jersey to finish up her master's degree. She wanted to keep our New Jersey apartment until the summer was over. So instead of having to pay two rents, During the summer, I crashed at my parents' house for a few months, and uh, one night my mother whipped up some chili for dinner, and she said, hey, you want some chili? I said, sure. And when I had it, I was like, oh, God, now I remember why I didn't eat this stuff. So, yeah, canned chili, oh, that is so disgusting. And Swiss cheese. I cannot stand Swiss cheese. It is, oh, God, it tastes like smelly feet. Ugh. I just can't deal with Swiss cheese. Even when it's well-cooked, I I just can't. I just can't. My cheese is on burgers. I can take American cheese. Uh, real American. I'm not talking, like, say, Kraft cheese or Velveeta. I'm talking real American cheese. It's the kind that you'd get at a deli. Like that, cheddar cheese. Colby cheese is good on a burger. Monterey Jack, Colby Jack mozzarella even I like on a burger. Provolone's good on a burger, but man, Swiss I cannot deal with. I just can't. Uh, 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 uh. And there's, I think, one other food that I like to talk about when I talk about foods I can't stand, and that's Italian sausage. Now, the thing is, I like the overall flavor of the sausage itself, but there's this spice in it uh anise i don't know how it's pronounced anise a-n-i-s-e or fennel uh, i think it's pretty much the same thing i cannot stand the taste of that stuff if it weren't for that sausage would be my preferred pizza topping but instead my preferred pizza topping is pepperoni and actually i've been having bacon on my pizza too bacon is an amazingly good pizza topping i never really thought much of uh, putting bacon on pizza before but man it is so good on a pizza and by the way I actually like pineapple on a pizza. Does it belong on a pizza? Anything you like belongs on it, personally. There was one time my friend Andrew—I think I—I I think I kind of uh, briefly touched upon this in the previous episode, actually. But my friend Andrew years ago, when we were at Pizza Hut once, uh, it was just—it was a bunch of us. We were at Pizza Hut, and uh, so we just basically got a whole bunch of pizzas for the table, and Andrew asked if one of them could be ham and pineapple. And we're all looking at him and say, what are you doing? He said, trust me, this is really good. Because he, he's he been known to do stuff that was bizarre. Like, I was at a Chinese restaurant with him and a bunch of other people once, and he took a bottle of that hot Chinese mustard and just poured it into his egg drop soup for like several seconds, several seconds straight, and then he ate it. That's the kind of stuff he'd do sometimes, and I'm... I'm pretty sure he would i don't know if he'd still do that today actually but last actually a couple of years ago i was with him at a uh big bowl once and he didn't do that but <laughs> but that's the kind of stuff he'd do so of course ham and pineapple were like are you nuts but the lady at pizza hut said oh yeah we can easily do a hawaiian style and i tried to slice so i was like man this isn't half this is pretty good this is pretty good it's not my favorite but it was pretty good it worked and uh, by the way, Hawaiian-style pizza was invented in Toronto, I think. If Well, somewhere in Ontario, I'm pretty sure, if not Toronto. But, and I'll say this, Lou Malnati's, which is one of the big four deep-dish pizza places in Chicago, I love their Italian sausage. Theirs doesn't have that nasty spice in it. If I'm getting deep-dish pizza from Lou's, I'm going with Italian sausage on it. But oh, all right. T- tell you the truth, though, if I'm going to Lou Malnati's and it's not with a bunch of people, if it's just for me, I'm getting their chicken club salad because it is so good. Oh, that's the best salad I ever had. I think. But yeah, that's me and food. Anything else, I'm pr- I'm pretty good with. Uh, I when I enumerate the things that I don't like to eat, people think I'm a very fussy eater, but I'm not. I I'm really not. I have a wide variety of tastes. I there's some Indian food that I love, Chinese food I love. Uh, sushi, as long as it doesn't have tuna, because I hate tuna. Tuna actually gives me a headache. American food, I love Mexican food, provided it's onion-free. <laughs> there, there actually is plenty of onion-free Mexican food. Tex-Mex, I guess I should say. But yeah, and <laughs> someone thinks I'm a fussy eater, I refer them to my father, who's literally Midwestern meat and potatoes kind of guy. <laughs> he doesn't even like rice. Oh, by the way, here's something else interesting about me that I think is kind of unique. On my mother's side, my mother is half Russian, half Lithuanian. So there's that 50% Russian blood coming from her into my life. On my dad's side, there's some Irish blood. Well, at least that's what he told me. There's a lot of mysteries on my dad's side of the family. So think about that. In my body is Irish blood and Russian blood. I have never... Been drunk. I've never been drunk. May okay. There's only there might be one exception. Speaking of our honeymoon, when uh, Lisa and I honeymooned, we went to Bermuda, and there's this pub in Bermuda called the Swizzle Inn. I got a feeling it's a tourist trap, but still, uh, their claim to fame is that they allegedly invented a drink called the Rum Swizzle, which has five different types of rum in it. Their motto is swizzle in, swagger out. So you order a rum swizzle. What they do is they come to your table and they plunk down this pitcher and the fumes that come out of it practically knock you over. But Lisa and I were drinking that stuff. We both got a little bit too giggly, so maybe we were drunk at the time. (laughs) But that's about the only time if I was ever really seriously under the influence of any kind of substance, it was then So yeah, Irish and Russian, and I've never been I'm not really a big drinker. I'm not not a big drinker. I'm really not. I don't drink beer a lot. If I do, it's very particular. Like, I love Guinness from the tap. Most I've ever had in one sitting, though, was two pints, and that was only once. Usually, I just have one beer and then wash it down with another drink just to get that beery taste out of my mouth. But yeah, it's got to be good beer. I like the Leinenkugel fruit flavor stuff like their shandies and their uh berry vice that stuff's really tasty but other than that it's not i'm not really a huge drinker i love bailey's irish cream that stuff is i'll tell you this is something that i tell people if you don't believe that god exists and that he loves you that means that you have never had bailey's bailey's is proof that god loves you oh it's so good so good and there are a few mixed drinks I enjoy, but again, I never have more than one drink. I don't know why. I mean, I don't I never really have the desire to get drunk. I guess there might be a little fear cuz I don't know how I am if I'm drunk. I don't want to find out I'm a violent drunk who beats people up or something. But yeah, I've except for maybe that one time in Bermuda, I have never been, And I also Oh, yeah, and also, I'll tell you this about myself. The first time that Lisa and I went to New Orleans, They have this place called Pat O'Brien's. It's in the French Quarter. One night we went to Pat O'Brien's and had hurricanes. And if you've never had a hurricane before, at least from Pat O'Brien's, the way they make it, it tastes like you're drinking strawberry Kool-Aid. It is so tasty. But the thing is, it's got a lot of alcohol in it. When I posted on Facebook that I was at Pat O'Brien's, a friend of mine told me, be very careful there. The drunkest I've ever been in my life was at Pat O'Brien's. <laughs> so I we both had our hurricanes, and then we went over to Preservation Hall and listened to uh, that night's combo for an hour. And then after the show, we went back to Pat O'Brien's and had mint juleps. And oh, I have to tell this story. While we were at Pat O'Brien's, when we were talking just out of nowhere, Lisa said, you know? I don't think I want kids. And I said, really? You, you, don't, you don't think you want kids? Because here's the thing. We kind of, like long before we were married, we kind of discussed, you know, what we wanted in the future. And we tossed around the idea of having kids. And over the years, you know, things, things happened. You know, Lisa said, okay, um, when we turn 30, that's when we can start having kids. Lisa turned thirty first, And she said, we'll start having kids when you turn 30. And then I turned 30 and she said, well, let me finish my master's. Then we'll start having kids. And when she finished her master's, uh, I no longer heard about it. And in my mind, I'm thinking, God, do I bring this up? Because I don't think I want to have kids. Because the way I saw it, the reason, the only reason I could think of that I entertained kids as a possibility was, well, because that's what you do. You get married and you have kids. There was no other reason. I never liked little kids. Just the thought of them being around always disgusted me. I'll tell you this, there's one exception, my niece. My niece always has been awesome from the day she was born 27 years ago to now. She has been awesome. And I always loved her to bits. I always enjoyed having her around. So, But that's that was the exception. When I worked at the library, I couldn't stand being around little kids. Like, oh, God. But yeah, there was that one night when Lisa just said, "Yeah, I don't think I want kids. So, yeah, I'm just talking to her and I'm saying, really? Well, okay. Um, that's what I'm saying. But in my mind, I am doing freaking cartwheels. I'm doing cartwheels. But I waited till about a week later when I was absolutely sure that there was zero alcohol flowing through her system. And I said, um, honey, remember when we were at Pat O'Brien's and when we were talking? And she said, yeah, I remember. And I was serious. And I mean that. <laughs> So, that was that. And uh, so, instead of kids, we've had dogs. (laughs) Yeah, that's why my wife and I are just the two of us plus Lola the Beagle. And something else about me. You're not going to see me wear a tie. You just won't. I am such a casual dresser. I really am. Uh, And I'll tell you one reason that I do not wear a tie. I don't know why, but as long as I can remember, ever since I was a toddler, if somebody wearing a tie approached me... I would have a panic attack. I would have this internal anxiety attack. I would just freak out on the inside. And what I don't understand is how I was able to survive working at Sharp Electronics, because at least when Ted Urushi Sako was president of Sharp, uh, we there was a very strict dress code in the entire company, including us contractors working in the call center. Where there were no windows, nobody could see us. It was in a place where even if a customer happened to drop by, they would never, ever, ever have access to. I had to wear a tie to work every day. I don't know how I survived that. Thankfully, that dress code was uh, very relaxed after uh, Perry Clay, an American, took over. Uh, they, he said, okay, we're only going to put the tie policy into effect if uh, the Japanese are coming over to visit. So, which thankfully only happened once or twice after he took over. But yeah, I, I just something about wearing a tie, I just cannot stand, I cannot tolerate it. I can't. I don't know when the last time I wore a tie was. Even my grandmother's funeral. My grandmother is a wonderful woman. And yes, I said is, even though she's dead. Just because she's not here anymore doesn't mean she's not wonderful. She is a great woman. I still didn't wear a tie to her funeral. I figured that if I ever find out that I'm going to be in a situation that I have to wear something under the collar of my shirt... I'm going to get an ascot. Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to wear a tie. I don't like looking down and seeing this giant tongue hanging out under my chin. I don't like the constriction I give. One one piece of advice that uh, the late Pat Paul, my teacher in eighth grade, gave us was when you get fitted for a shirt, get one with a neck size that's one size higher than what it's supposed to be, and that way it lessens the restriction that a tie gives you. He hated wearing ties, too, and he actually said... When I die, if I'm wearing a tie in that casket, I'm relying on someone to take that thing off. thing is, I didn't go to his wake or funeral when he did sadly die at too young an age, 52 years old. I, so I don't know if he was wearing a tie. I don't know. I have a feeling he was not. See, I don't wear ties, and I dress down as much as I can because it's comfy, it's freeing, I feel more versatile, and thankfully I work in a field in which basically stereotypically you wear jeans and a black t-shirt. <laughs> so what else can I say that I figured I'd share some uh, peculiar qualities about myself as a schnook. Now, having said that there is a reason that I wanted to get this episode out. The whole reason that this episode exists as opposed to just waiting for the next episode that's coming out this month is because there's something that I've been toying with mm-hmm. for a while. And I figured now would be a good time to discuss it, and you'll hear why in this upcoming Music for schnooks. Shortly before this episode was released, we passed the 55th anniversary of a pretty monumental album. No, not Pet Sounds, not Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, not Dark Side of the Moon, not Thriller, not even Philosophy of the World... When you ask music fans what their favorite Beatles album is, you may be told Revolver. You know, it used to be that Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band was considered the Fab Four's Crown Jewel, but not so much anymore. Now people tend to say it's Revolver. I thought about why all of a sudden the Crown Jewel went from Sgt. Pepper's to Revolver, and I think I came up with an explanation. I think sometime in the early 2000s, some rebellious magazine article writer said, You know, in this article about the Beatles, I'm not going to say that the Sgt. Pepper album is their greatest. I'm going to say that Revolver is! (laughs) And readers of that article gasped in shock. But then they thought, well, actually, yes, Revolver is their greatest album. This guy's trying to be cool? Well, I can be cool, too. When you listen to Revolver, there are indeed some classics. Taxman, Eleanor Rigby, yellow submarine, got to get you into my life, and your bird can sing, and of course the groundbreaking tomorrow never knows. But as a whole, The album, at least in my opinion, doesn't have a good, solid flow. It seems like it's basically a repository for the Beatles' various experimentation. A dumping ground, if you will. There were some new experiments in sound, of course, but it shows that they were new experiments, and that the band and the production and engineering staff were rusty. They, of course, had mastered it by the time Sgt. Peppers came out. Many say that Abbey Road is the Beatles' best. As far as I'm concerned, that is an absolutely valid assertion. Every single song on that album is great. As usual, you have a big selection of Lennon-McCartney songs, and then you have a couple of George Harrison contributions, and for only the second time in the Beatles history, a song entirely written by Ringo, although with a little bit of assistance from George, as evidenced in the movie Let It Be. Lisa and I quite frequently talk about how Abbey Road is essentially the Beatles' final thesis, presenting everything they'd learned over the years. There's raw rock and roll with Come Together and Oh Darling. The band demonstrates technological advancement with the subtle use of a Moog synthesizer in Because and Maxwell's Silver Hammer. As he did on the Sgt. Pepper's album, George Martin stepped in with some masterful orchestral arrangements on something and the end, the latter track also including solos from each of the four Beatles. If Abbey Road is the Beatles' final thesis, then what's the thesis statement of Abbey Road? Well, here it is. Indeed, Abbey Road was, for a while, my favorite Beatles album. Sometimes it was Magical Mystery Tour, but lately in my rethinking, I'd have to say that for at least the time being, my favorite Beatles album is actually Rubber Soul. Here's a bit of hard data about Rubber Soul. The Rubber Soul album was released in England on EMI's Parlophone label on December 3rd, 1965, and in the United States on the EMI-owned Capitol Records on December 6th. If you're a big Beatles fan or are a regular listener of this podcast, then you already know that the Beatles' albums were usually drastically different in the UK and the US at this point. Well, Rubber Soul was unique for its time in that the album of the same title on both sides of the ocean actually not only had the same title and the same album cover, but also a very similar track lineup. First of all, here are the songs that are on the UK version, and ergo the generally accepted as canonical version of Rubber Soul. Side One kicks off with the Paul McCartney rocker Drive My Car, followed by John Lennon's Norwegian Wood, um, in parentheses is uh, the Bird Has Flown. Next is You Won't See Me, one of two Paul McCartney songs on the album in which McCartney vents about his frustrations with his future fiancée and future ex-fiancée, Jane Asher. Lennon's classic Nowhere Man comes next, followed by Think For Yourself, the first of two George Harrison songs we get on this album. We go back to John Lennon with the word... And then back to Paul McCartney for the side one closer, Michelle, a song that inexplicably won a Grammy for Song of the Year in 1967, despite never having been released as a single. And uh, I only learned when prepping for this episode that John Lennon actually helped out with the bridge, taking some inspiration from Nina Simone's version of I Put a Spell on You. I love you! I love you! I love you! I love you! Side 2 starts with the only song in the Beatles catalog to be credited to the trio of Lennon, McCartney, and Starkey. Starkey, of course, being Ringo Starr. The song is a rockabilly number called What Goes On. For a long time, What Goes On had been ignored by many Beatles fans. But when Ringo does it in concert these days, it goes over quite well. It's a fan favorite now. Next is actually the last song that was recorded for the album, and it's called Girl. It's a Lennon song that you could argue eerily predicted his relationship with Yoko Ono before the two even met. McCartney comes back next with another I'm talking to you, Jane Asher, kind of song, I'm looking through you. After that, we have the song that my wife walked down the aisle to, In My Life. Next is Wait, a leftover from the sessions for the Beatles' previous album, Help followed by George Harrison's If I Needed Someone. The album ends with Lennon's Run For Your Life. So that was the Parlophone version released in the United Kingdom and is generally regarded to be the official version of Rubber Soul, as opposed to the version released by Capitol Records in the United States, and I believe in Canada, by Capital of Canada, I think they have the same lineup. It was always standard in the UK to have 14 songs per album, but in the United States it was always 12, sometimes 11 songs. People love to rag on Capitol Records for manipulating the Beatles' albums, but uh, the truth is it wasn't just Capitol. All American labels that had British performers messed with their albums when they were sent over here to the States. It has something to do with how royalties are distributed or something that allegedly necessitated shortening the albums to 12 or 11 songs but here's what Rubber Soul had on it when American fans bought it. On side one from start to finish, I've just seen a face, Norwegian Wood, You Won't See Me, Think For Yourself, The Word, and Michelle. On side two, again from start to finish, you have It's Only Love, Girl, I'm Looking Through You, In My Life, Wait, and Run For Your Life. So for the most part... The song lineup remained obviously pretty much intact, but we are missing four songs. Drive My Car, Nowhere Man, What Goes On, and If I Needed Someone. And I just now noticed that each of those four songs is sung by a different Beatle. Wow. But anyway, without those songs, it now brings the song count to 10. But the thing is, we need at least 11, ideally 12 songs. So what did Capitol Records do? They took I've Just Seen a Face and It's Only Love, both of which appeared on the British version of the Help album, but not the American version. The American Help album was a true soundtrack album for the movie of the same name. There were only seven Beatles songs on it, and the rest of the album was filled out with some instrumental music from the movie, courtesy of Ken Thorne. A few of the leftover songs from the British Help album that weren't on the American one got stuck on another Capitol Records album called Beatles Six, which was basically a collection of random songs that got cut off other albums after Capitol butchered them. Now, despite Capitol futzing around with the Rubber Soul album, there are some fans who will argue that the US version of Rubber Soul is actually better than the UK version. Why? Well, because the US version actually has a more constant, consistent flow. With the removal of four songs that were heavily electric guitar-powered, Rubber Soul now has a much more folky sound to it from start to finish in the U.S. Most of the songs are very acoustic guitar-centered, so there's a more mellow feel to it. So the U.S. version actually does have a smoother aural flow. Just to add to the craziness that is the two different Rubber Soul lineups... In America, there were actually two different stereo versions. There's a much-talked-about so-called East Coast pressing, referred to as the East Coast pressing because it's believed to have been made at Capitol Records' Scranton pressing plant. And this pressing is unique in that it has some reverb that's not present on any other version of the album. I did recently read that some reverb copies might actually have also come from the Jacksonville, Illinois plant. And just to add to the mess, different copies may have different levels of reverb because the reverb was supposedly added manually with each pressing. I've heard one of the stereo reverb pressings, and to be honest, the reverb, at least on the version that I heard, wasn't terribly noticeable. Unlike, say, the reverb that Capitol Records added to some earlier Beatles songs, like the great She's a Woman. Now, here's how they always heard it in England. Now, here's how American Beatles fans heard it on the Beatles 65 album. Love, but if you really want to hear the difference between a standard US copy of Rubber Soul and a so-called East Coast stereo pressing, here you go. First the standard, and now that same song, but from what is believed to have been from a Scranton pressing. Speaking of variations, when you sit down and think about it, there are several variations of Rubber Soul. It goes beyond just the U.K. and the U.S. versions. For one thing, the U.S. stereo rubber sole has a couple of variations that are not present in the mono or the U.K. version. The song The Word has a double-tracked John Lennon lead vocal, but in the U.S. mono and U.K. mono and stereo variations, the second vocal track is potted pretty far down, so you don't really notice the double-tracking right away. It's there, but it's subtle. But on the U.S. Stereo version, both vocal tracks are clearly audible. For comparison, here's the standard version. In the beginning, I misunderstood. But now I've got it, the word is good. And here's the U.S. Stereo version. In the beginning, I misunderstood. But now I've got it, the word is good. Also, I know I touched upon this in Chapter 2's installment of music for Schnooks, But I should probably bring it up again here. Perhaps the most well-known variation is in the beginning of I'm Looking Through You. Here's how the US mono and UK versions start. Now here's the beginning of the US stereo mix. But in the meantime, let's count what we have so far. We have UK Mono, UK Stereo, US Mono, US Stereo, and the US East Coast Stereo. So that's five different versions of Rubber Soul that we have so far. In 2004, there was a box set called The Capital Albums Volume 1. And two years later, it was followed by another called Are you sitting down? The Capital Albums Volume 2... Each of these two boxes had four CDs that contained Beatles albums in both mono and stereo, as originally released in the 60s by Capitol Records in the United States, complete with the odd variations and added reverb that were unique to those Capitol albums. I remember at BeatleFest, Beatles historian and attention-wanter Martin Lewis preached against releasing the Beatles American albums on CD. He argued that if you really want the American lineups on CD, just take the existing CDs based on the UK albums and rip them and re burn your own custom CDs. Of course, that totally ignores the fact that many of the songs are completely different versions that are not on the British albums. But that was one of the cool things about the two Capitol box sets. They were definitely the American versions, they're not the versions from the British albums just resequenced. For the record, in 2013, there was another release of the Capitol Records albums on CD, but rather than use the actual American mixes, they used the British mixes, for the most part, from what I understand. Uh, When I found out that that's what they did, I opted not to buy the 2013 versions. But anyway, um, where was I going with... Oh, right, right. Um, When the Capitol Albums Volume 2 came out in 2006 people noticed something strange about the mono version of Rubber Soul. Rather than the actual mono version of the U.S. album, it was a fold-down mono mix of the stereo version. The giveaway? I'm Looking Through You had the two false starts that you heard a few minutes ago that are exclusive to the U.S. stereo mix. Now, in case you don't know what I mean by fold-down mono mix, before 1969, this is how popular music pretty much was in general. Albums had two separate mixes done, one for mono, one for stereo. Usually there was a price difference that went along with that, and stores the mono versions usually were a dollar cheaper. But sometimes, instead of doing a separate mono and stereo mix, an engineer might do just a stereo mix, and then for the mono release, they just take the stereo mix and combine or fold those two stereo channels down to one mono channel. Now, here's the thing. It was not uncommon, and it's still not uncommon, for engineers to make a fold down mono mix of a stereo mix just for testing purposes, to make sure there aren't any issues such as phasing in case somebody is listening to a stereo mix on, say, a single speaker setup or something. And that's pretty much the consensus as to why that fold down rubber sole mono mix existed in the first place. Just for testing purposes, and it was accidentally included in the Capitol albums volume two. Capital offered a replacement with the correct mono mix. You would contact Capitol Records with your address, and then they'd send you a pre-stamped mailer that you'd drop the faulty CD in, and then they'd send you back the corrected one. And of course, I did that. I sent the uh, CD with the incorrect mono mix in, and they sent me back the one with the correct mono mix. I know someone who wanted the correct mono mix, but at the same time, he didn't want to sacrifice a potential collector's item. So he actually went so far as to take a blank CDR, painstakingly scanned the faulty CD, printed it as a label, and attached that label to the CDR, and he sent the CDR to Capitol Records. And so help me God. They actually sent him the corrected CD. They didn't even look at the CD he sent in. They just assumed it was the factory CD and not just essentially a counterfeit. (laughs) So um, anyway, in case you're keeping track now, let's go over that one more time. The list of different rubber sole versions. There's the UK Mono, UK Stereo, US True Mono, US Stereo, US East Coast Stereo, and now the 2006 US Fold Down Mono. Um, If I did my math correctly, which I probably did, that's six different versions of Rubber Soul now. Oh, actually, no, no, wait a second, I forgot one. In 1987, the Beatles albums made their debut on Compact Disc, and those CDs were based on the British albums, which meant that you could not get Meet the Beatles or Beatles 65 on Compact Disc. Instead, you would have With the Beatles and Beatles for Sale. And because the CDs were based on the British albums, that meant that the album titles that were the same on both sides of the Atlantic but had different track lineups would have the track lineups from the British versions. Therefore, the Rubber Soul CD had the 14-song lineup that included Nowhere Man and If I Needed Someone. However, there was still something different about it. Beatles producer George Martin was not satisfied with the mixes of the Help and Rubber Soul albums that he did back in 1965. So in 1986, in preparation for the following year's CD reissue, he took it upon himself to remix those two albums. So that means that the list of different versions of the Rubber Soul album now includes UK Mono, US Mono, US Stereo, US East Coast Stereo, 2006 US Fold Down Mono, UK Stereo, 1965 version, and UK Stereo, 1986 version. Even today, if you buy the UK Rubber Soul either on the 2009 remastered CD or as a download, you're getting the 1986 mix. The 1965 mix is available, but only if you buy the box set called The Beatles in mono. Despite it being a collection of mono albums, it also includes Help and Rubber Soul, in their original 1965 stereo mixes, as kind of a bonus. I think that covers all the different aural variations of the Rubber Soul album, unless you count the songs that were used on the Love Songs, Rock and Roll Music, and Beatles ballads compilations in the 70s. Before I continue with this thought, the thing about the Rubber Soul stereo mix is that, for the most part, the vocals are panned all the way to one side, I believe the right. Is there anybody And uh, many people don't like that. They don't like hearing the vocals all the way to the left or all the way to the right. They like the vocals to be centered. So for those aforementioned 70s albums, songs on those compilations that were pulled from Rubber Soul, those songs, George Martin tinkered with the stereo mixes and tried to make the vocals a little bit more centered. Is there anybody Why he didn't just go back to the multi-tracks and remix them, I have no idea, and as long as George remains dead, he's not commenting on the matter. But I don't think I would count that in the list of different Rubber Soul variations because it's only a handful of songs, like four or five, I think. There also exists at least one homebrew version of Rubber Soul, and it's making the trading circles, and that version has the vocals centered. Is there anybody going to listen to my story? I wouldn't count that since it's just a fan creation and also I haven't really given it much attention so I I can't really comment on it at this point. So um, that's all I have to say about the, um, I guess, technical details about Rubber Soul. But was the album a success? (laughs) Dude, it's the freaking Beatles. What do you think? And if you want evidence that it was successful, well, in England, the album went to number one on the Melody Maker chart and it stayed there for 13 weeks. And on Record Retailer, it was number one for eight weeks. Here in the States, Billboard had it at number one for six weeks and Cashbox had it at number one for seven. In the United States, Rubber Soul sold. You would not believe how hard it is to say Rubber Soul sold. (laughs) Anyway, the album sold 1.2 million copies in just nine days, which at the time was unprecedented for a pop music album. Over on the West Coast, you had a 23-year-old guy named Brian Wilson who had a band called The Beach Boys. He heard Rubber Soul, and he thought it was the best album he ever heard. No filler on it, nothing but good songs from start to finish. And he vowed to do the same thing after hearing it. He said, I'm going to do my own Rubber Soul. I'm going to do an album that has nothing but good songs from the beginning all the way through to the end with no filler tracks. So, he began work on a little collection that became known as Pet Sounds. And by the way, in case anybody's wondering whether it was the American version or the British version that Brian Wilson heard, I mean, after all, being in the music biz himself and being quite a popular producer... Brian theoretically could have had easier access to, say, overseas imports than most consumers. But no, Brian Wilson recently said specifically that it was the American version that he heard. But man, I can only imagine how he would have reacted if he were listening to Rubber Soul back then, and he heard Nowhere Man. Ooh, He would have been convinced beyond unconvincing that the Beatles were talking to him. I guarantee it. But for me personally, the first time I heard Rubber Soul, it also was the American version. And it was probably around 1987-1988. It was a record that I borrowed from the public library, and it was a stereo copy that I think was from the mid-80s. It had a black label with the rainbow edge. Um, it's, I, I know that later pressings in the 80s had a uh, purple label, this had the black label. But whatever pressing it was, it sounded really good. And back then, I had been taking a huge, deep dive into the Beatles, and I found that Rubber Soul was, well, the most un-Beatles-sounding Beatles album that I'd ever heard. Yet it was most definitely the Beatles, without a doubt. Over 30 years later, I still feel that way. Rubber Soul sounded nothing like the Beatles had ever done before, and arguably nothing like they ever did after. Norwegian Wood was so unusual with its lyrical theme of a failed one-night stand, and with its unusual percussion and the first use of a sitar in a popular song in Western music. Girl had kind of a dark and mysterious vibe that no other Beatles song had ever had. The musical arrangement in Michelle had never really occurred on a Beatles record before. Just the overall musical vibe all together on Rubber Soul. Wow, the Beatles must have been going through something pretty intense. And yeah, I know what you Beatles fans listening are saying right now, well yes they were going through something pretty intense. It's called MARIJUANA! Which yeah, I suppose is true. The album reportedly was recorded in a thick cloud of THC, and that's really no surprise. And by the way, the common lore is that Bob Dylan introduced the Beatles to pot in 1965, and no, that is not true. I mean, come on, think about it. All the time that these guys spent playing in nightclubs in the Raperbahn in Hamburg, they never once smoked a joint? Please. I mean, heck, Mark Lewison confirms in his book Tune In that, oh yeah, the Beatles certainly did smoke pot before Dylan ever crossed their paths. Now, anyway, let me get to the reason that this segment exists for this episode. I wanted to give a bit of background on Rubber Soul just so I could kind of explain myself, give you kind of a basis to where I'm going here. Among the music fans that I hang out with both in person and virtually, online, there are three homebrew projects that I encounter people taking upon themselves very frequently, and, uh, hmm, that's the second time this segment that I use the term homebrew. Well, actually, now that's three. (laughs) Sometimes Monkeys fans will try to construct an alternate version of the band's 1969 album The Monkees Present and make it into a two record set. Beach Boys fans to this day roll their own versions of how the infamous Smile album would have sounded, even though Brian Wilson eventually did finish it in 2004. And a very popular project that many Beatles fans take up is to take the two record self-titled album or as some people call it the White Album and trim it down to just one single record. I'm not doing any of that stuff. Instead, my little project is something that I don't think I've ever heard of anybody trying. Making the ideal Rubber Soul album, taking into account the British and the American versions of Rubber Soul. The thing is, friends, I tend to agree with fans who say that the American version, even though it's shorter, is actually better. However, I honestly really hate to listen to Rubber Soul without If I Needed Someone. And uh, that song is pretty heavy on the electric guitar, and ergo it breaks up the folky feel of the rest of the album. But it's such a great song, and it doesn't really fit well anywhere else in the catalog. And I'll tell you one thing about If I Needed Someone, it holds a place in my Perfect Beatles Songs playlist. So, considering the Parlophone Records lineup of Rubber Soul in England, and the Capitol Records lineup in the States, what goes on my custom-made version of Rubber Soul? Well, first off, I just want to make it clear that I don't use any of the songs from the so-called East Coast Stereo Pressing, because those have extra reverb, and I don't want to have inconsistency in reverb from start to finish. Also, I'm using stereo mixes. I'm not using the mono mixes, because the stereo mixes sound brighter. And they're the standard UK-US stereo mixes. There's nothing from uh, any of the remix compilations. I'm not using any of the new mixes, like, say, the 1999 remix of Think For Yourself from the Yellow Submarine song track, or the version of Girl that comes from the Love soundtrack. But anyway, the first song on my Rubber Soul lineup is what kicks off the Capitol Records version of the album, and that's I've Just Seen a Face. I find it odd that this song is buried so deeply on side two of the UK help album. It has an intro that can really go anywhere you want it to go, and then when the intro's over, you got this great up-tempo Simon Garfunkel-esque vibe, so I've Just Seen a Face is a perfect album opener. Both Parlophone and Capital place Norwegian Wood next, and so do I. To me... Norwegian Wood is what truly establishes the overall sound and vibe of Rubber Soul. And I have to say, if there were such a thing as a single perfect Beatles song, because there's not, but if there were, it would be Norwegian Wood. It tells a complete story. It has several verses, two bridges, and even an instrumental break. On top of that, you have this new exotic instrument, the sitar. At least it was new and exotic to the Beatles. You had all of that in. Two minutes. That's how long the song is. Two minutes. I mean, yeah, if you play it back on CD, the timer might say two minutes, four seconds or whatever, but you gotta allow for the silence afterwards between songs. But anyway, the melody is catchy, and the overall sound is unique, what with the use of the sitar played against a folky backdrop. The next song in my lineup is You Won't See Me. And nothing much to say about that, except that's pretty much where it is on both the UK and the US versions of the album. Now, I do kind of go against the whole vibe of the general folk sound of Rubber Soul by putting Nowhere Man from the UK version next. There are two reasons for it. Number one, I think back to my comment about Brian Wilson. I really think that if Brian had heard Nowhere Man on Rubber Soul... Strange things would have happened, possibly for the better, possibly for the worse, depending on how he was feeling mentally that day. But nowhere, man, I, I have to put it on here. And there's also a logical reason for that. This was actually very clever sequencing on the side of the folks who sequenced the original UK lineup of Rubber Soul. Notice the background vocals if You Won't See Me, with all the la-la-la-la parts. <laughs> very similar to the background vocals of Nowhere Man. Nowhere man so those two naturally go hand-in-hand hand right there. Next, I have Think For Yourself simply because, hey, it's in that position on both versions of the album, UK and US, and it works pretty well, especially after Nowhere Man. And then The Word. Again, pretty much the same position on both versions of the album. However, I'm using the US stereo mix here, because I really love hearing John Lennon's double-track vocals both audibly. It sounds really good and adds a little extra oomph to it. And closing off side one, I have Michelle, just like it is on both sides of the Atlantic. Now, the word and Michelle, that's another example of clever sequencing, because listen to the last chords of the word. Listen to how they descend. Now listen to the opening chords of Michelle. It has that same kind of descending pattern there, so those two definitely belong together. Now, we're going to turn the record over, assuming you're listening to it on record, or turn the tape over if you're listening to it on a tape, of course. Side 2 of My Rubber Soul starts with I'm Looking Through You, and there are a couple of reasons for that. First of all, I'm using the American stereo version that has the two false starts. That is a really cool way to start off an album side, having a couple of false starts with an acoustic guitar. Gee, kind of like Revolution 1 on the White Album. (laughs) Also, I figured side 1 starts with an acoustic-y, folky, McCartney tune. Why not do the same with side 2? Also, think about this. I'm Looking Through You is obviously a dig at Paul's girlfriend, Jane Asher. So... We're going to start off with a Paul song about his mysteries with a girl, and let's continue it with John's song about mysteries of a girl called Girl. And like I said earlier, this song eerily predicts his relationship with Yoko Ono, whom he wouldn't even meet for at least another year. Next in my lineup, in my life. It belongs on side two where it is, and it stays on side two where it is. After In My Life, That's Where I Have Weight. That's a song I always loved. I thought it was one of the coolest Beatles songs ever, and that's I just wanted to comment about that. Now, here's the thing. On British Beatles albums, except for A Hard Day's Night, the Beatles made sure that Ringo had at least one lead vocal. Because Ringo had a lot of fans. In fact, here's something that uh, a lot of non-Beatles fans might not know. Ringo by far got the most fan mail of all four of the Beatles. So they gotta have something for Ringo. The problem is when Capitol Records resequenced Rubber Soul, they didn't leave Ringo with any lead vocals. So right here is where I rectify that problem and I put what goes on. The other day I saw you as I walked along the road, but when I saw him with you, I couldn't feel my And here's where something else that I noticed happens. On side two, so far, I have a Paul vocal, followed by a John vocal, followed by another John vocal, followed by a John and Paul vocal. Now I have a Ringo vocal. We haven't heard from George yet. Now here's where If I Needed Someone comes, and it's roughly the same place that it falls on the UK version of the album. So I gotta have that there, and it definitely belongs on Rubber Soul, for sure. Now here's the thing. The next song is what closes my version of Rubber Soul. I'm thinking, okay, we're getting a little bit electric here, and throughout the song, If I Needed Someone, you have a really catchy riff. So we better continue that catchiness of guitar riffs. I closed my version of Rubber Soul with Day Tripper. Ooh, ho ho ho. Because what better way to close an album? That is a kick-ass song. Close an album with Day Tripper. Oof. That you got me. You got me. You got me. Now, what's missing? Well, Run For Your Life, which is what closed Rubber Soul on both sides of the Atlantic. Why did I cut it off then? Well, because not a lot of people like it, including John Lennon. John Lennon said, and I quote, I always hated Run For Your Life. And it does sound a little bit like a throwaway. The melody doesn't really go anywhere. It sounds like it was written pretty quickly. And in fact, that opening line... Well, here's the opening line. Well, I'd rather see you dead little girl than to be with another man. By the way, uh, let's listen to a little bit of a song by one of the Beatles' idols, Elvis Presley, from when he was at Sun Records. listen to me, baby, try to understand I'd rather see you dead little girl than the be with another man. Walen was a known plagiarist. This wasn't his first time and it by far was not the last time. Yeah, come on, flat top. He was moving up with me. So you know what? Let's keep the album as original as possible and just get rid of Run For Your Life. Drive My Car also is missing because, well, I don't know. It just sounds weird to have such a heavy electric song, such a rocker kick off an album, and then you go into Norwegian Wood? No. So here's what I suggest we're doing. Run For Your Life, that's being pulled off Rubber Soul and being moved to the U.S. compilation Yesterday and Today. Ha ha. But what about Day Tripper? Day Tripper was on a single with We Can Work It Out. And in the United Kingdom, the Beatles, whenever possible, would make sure that their singles would not appear on the album because they figured, well, someone buys our single and then they buy the album and it has the single on it. They've essentially bought the same two songs twice. So here's what I did. I made Run For Your Life the B-side of We Can Work It Out, replacing Day Tripper. So there, problem solved. But what about Drive My Car? Well, in my world, it is now a single. But what goes on the B-side? Well, well, we can put something of lesser quality on there. Hey, we have a complete Beatles song in the vaults, never been released, and it has a Ringo vocal, so give him a single side. We'll put If You've Got Troubles on the B-side. If you got trouble, then you got less trouble than me. Now here's the thing, though. I have I've Just Seen a Face on my version of the Rubber Soul album, but in the UK, it was already on Help. So in my little world, I've Just Seen a Face is no longer on Help. Instead, the song Yes It Is is on Help. Just a straight replacement so that the song falls right before yesterday. Yesterday was a very mournful ballad by Paul McCartney. Now, if you put Yes It Is in the place of I've Just Seen a Face, then before the mournful Paul McCartney ballad, you now have a mournful John Lennon ballad. Now, this actually would mean that both sides of the Ticket to Ride single now appear on the Help album. But guess what? The same thing happened with A Hard Day's Night and Things We Said Today. Those two songs were released on a single in England, and they were also on the album A Hard Day's Night. And think about this. Both A Hard Day's Night and Help were tie-in albums for movies of the same name. So you got to release the title songs as singles, and you can't leave them off the albums. So movie tie-in albums, those are a fine exception. Just to recap, My Rubber Soul, Side One, I've Just Seen a Face, Norwegian Wood. You Won't See Me, Nowhere Man, Think For Yourself, The Word from the American Stereo Version, and Michelle. That's side one. Side two, I'm looking through you from the American Stereo Version, Girl, In My Life, Wait, What Goes On, If I Needed Someone, and Day Tripper. And I just realized there are two different versions of what goes on. There are a few pressings of the American album Yesterday and Today in which, in the end of what goes on, you can hear Ringo, loud and clear, sing IN YOUR MIND a couple of times over. On most pressings, the vocal is still there, but it's potted way down, so you kind of have to pay close attention to hear it personally either one of those versions i'd pr- i'd probably just use the more common version because you don't really need more in your mind at the end of the song just it's fine the way it is so there you go what do you think of my version of rubber soul play it try it out yourself see if it works this isn't my first attempt at doing a rubber soul resequencing by the way i did another one a couple of years ago in which i tried to do say one side Acoustic, folky kind of stuff, and the other side electric. And I think I included both We Can Work It Out and Day Tripper, but I didn't like how it sounded. It just didn't sound right. I do like this lineup, though. I might tweak it a little bit, but we'll see. For me, it's a good solution for if I want to hear Rubber Soul, either version, American version or UK version. They're both really, really good. They're both great. But If I can't make up my mind, do I want to hear the American version, and am I going to miss Nowhere Man, and if I needed someone? well, This seems like a viable solution. In my life, I love you more. Ah, Rubber Soul. What an album. What an album. Either way you slice it. American, British, or schnook. It's a good listen. You cannot deny that. And, hey, that's chapter 28. Good grief. I've done 28 of these things, plus the preamble, plus two um, appendix shows, and very soon there will be a 29th. Wow. <laughs> well, what can I say other than, as usual, uh, you can reach out to me electronically in several ways. There's email, autobio at schnookpodcast.com, and you can reach out to me over Facebook and Twitter and Instagram with the handle of Schnook Podcast, and uh, I think that's yeah, that's those are the social media I'm on right now. Because well, Friendster is down, and uh, and who am I kidding? I'm not going to get people to follow me on MySpace. Even the people that I always acknowledge, such as my wife Lisa, who's been wonderful to put up with me doing this podcast and sometimes helping out. And hey, if you want to know what you can get a schnook for Christmas, hey, how about a five-star review on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or uh, whatever they're going to be calling it this week. So do that. Do that. And uh, spread the word about this podcast. By the way, Autobiography of a Schnook is part of the Fab4IT Podcast Network. And just to make everything nice-nice, I just want to say that there may be some copyrighted sounds and music used in this episode, and they remain the property of their respective copyright holders. No infringement is intended. Ritz is a registered trademark of National Biscuit Company, and this is sped up real fast because that's what they do in other things like radio commercials and stuff, to make things sound unintelligible, but they can claim, hey, we made the legal requirement to put that in here. Am I legally required to put that in here? I don't know. But hey, better safe than sorry, right? Right. But all of you who listened, thank you for your time. That is well appreciated. God bless you. If you don't believe in God, then uh, uh, something else bless you then, I guess. I don't know. Just something bless you, alright? In the meantime, uh, just remember, the good goes around, and I hope that I'm part of that good. And if I'm not, then I hope you find the good that does go around. All the best, my friends. When the Capital Albums Volume 2 came out... Camed? What's that, the double perfect tense? (laughs) Anyway, it's kind of like when people say stole. Ever notice that? People, instead of saying stole, sometimes they say stoled. Take two!